Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. In this episode, we delve into the transformative ideas of three influential late 20th century educational theorists. Each began with a flourishing career in teaching, but ultimately left the classroom behind, driven by a growing disenchantment with the educational system. Their collective experiences culminated in an incisive critique of conventional schooling, sparking calls in some quarters for comprehensive educational reform. But compelling as their arguments were, did they achieve any enduring impact on the landscape of education? All schools make some sort of show at teaching the pupils things, and a headmaster pin up a huge timetable of lessons, etc., which make the heart sink when you look at it. I mean, do the great British nation understand that thousands of its young pupils are looking at Latin, ugh, before their breakfast have even settled? I mean to say, how would they like seeing Minera, Minoraris, Minoraratur, etc. at that hour, eh? Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Great Minds on Learning on Critics of Schools. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark, as usual, and that was, of course, a quote from The Curse of St. Custard's, Nigel Molesworth, a fictional character created by British children's author Geoffrey Willans in the 1950s, who didn't very much like schools. Donald will be introducing us this time to an excellent group of theorists who looked at this subject not so much from the learner's point of view as Molesworth does, but certainly from a more academically respectable one. And it follows on this episode in a way from our last one, where we looked at educational theorists and practitioners in the first half of the 20th century who offered alternatives to mainstream schooling, uh, Steiner and the like. This time we focus on three thinkers in the latter half of that century who, taken together, make a more frontal assault on mainstream education. It's not experiments and alternatives we need, they told the world, so much as a wholesale reform of the education system. Uh, and maybe that isn't even enough. Maybe we just need to tear the whole thing down. Donald, is that a fair summary of this group, would you say? Can you enlarge on that description, please? And also tell us what is significant about the time in which they emerged? Yeah. I'm just throwing there. I like to literary. I love that impression, by the way, John. That was impressive. Oh, thank you very much. First ever full-on impression in the podcast, <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of another figure. And I'm sure you could do him very, very well indeed. And that's uh, old Thomas Grad uh, Grind from Hard Times and Dickens, because mm-hmm. he actually said, you know, that in fact Grad Grind was the very opposite. Of course, he was promoting the idea that you should have this industrial revolution type factory view of uh, schooling, very fact-oriented. Uh, I'm sure you could do an impression of him as well, no doubt. We'll work it in later in the series, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but in terms of like Grad Grinding, he came to regret the fact that he had these views because it started to affect his own family. There's a really brilliant bit in Hard Times that I always liked, which is there's a girl, and it's like right at the beginning of the book, called something Sally Jupe or something. She comes in and she's a circus performer, so she knows horses and you know, oh, yeah. she does the right back of the horses, and then she gets really poor marks on the horse bit of her essay because she wasn't factual enough about horses, even though she knew them, could ride them and so on. And uh, you know, he's, he's quite clever, uh, Dickens and 
un, you know, uncovering these things through characterization. You know, it's like that, that's that's his big, big skill, really, isn't it? Anyway, back to what what we were talking about there. I, I think what's interesting about this group, John, is we have schools and schooling, and then there are a number of things that come around on the back of that, which is a critique of it, because we gave a critique of that, and everybody's got a bit of a critique of schooling because we all went there and we think we could do it better, but it's actually quite hard for teachers and the politicians to, to reform anything. But there have been this group, this quite special group, who focused on words like de-schooling or unschooling and homeschooling, and that's what we're focusing on today, those three words in a sense. You have people like Ken Robinson and Hirsch and well, number, another podcast we'll be doing, no doubt, these are the people who critique skill and think it could be bettered or improved. But this group are actually much more critical than that and think it should be, in a sense, dismantled, hence de-schooling, unschooling, homeschooling. In other words, these are not like uh, the other past uh, podcasts we did on Montessori, for example, or Steiner, or people who wanted to just radically change a school and flip it around. Uh, these people actually want to... In a, in a sense, they're against schooling as we know it. And uh, mm. there are, I mean, the three people are indicative. There are many, many people in this field, and we could have picked a lot. But I think the big, on de-schooling, if we take that one first of all, the idea that, you know, institutionalized learning isn't as necessary as people think, and then we can sort of unravel it. The big uh, th uh, figure in that area is, of course, Ivan Illich, who sounds Russian. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but there are others like Paul Goodman carried on with that sort of stuff. You know, he was an American writer, poet, sociologist type guy. He carried on in that tradition. So we must remember there are many more than just the people we pick up on here. But there are also, if we then go on into the unschooling movement, which is a slightly different thing, that's much more about child-centered uh, view of education. We're going to be tackling John Holt there, uh, who's a big figure in this area, the big beast, as it were. Uh, and John Holt, his legacy was kept going in a very famous newsletter and books by uh, Pat Ferenga. So there, you know, the, all these people, uh, the stuff has carried on, as it were, go, uh, going on from this. And then we have things, homeschooling, of course, with John Holt. And then another really interesting figure, and that's John Taylor Gatto, who taught in Harlem in New York when it was a rough and tough old place and won, you know, best teacher in the US type award plaudits galore and then just gave it up one day and what was interesting was his reasons for giving it up and his recommendations about what we should do other than the schooling he had taught in and experienced so de-schooling unschooling homeschooling these are the things we'll be we'll be tackling today and how about the time when they come about because there's sort of from the late 50s through the 60s to 70s and 80s and of course that kind of coincides with uh the alternative culture the counterculture um you know those sort of uh yeah cultural and actual sort of revolutions all over europe like you know the paris 68 and so on this is time when the counterculture was born so to speak it, does it have anything to do with that i mean they're not really figures from the the, the left are they really they're more on the not really, yeah, that, that's a good question. Illich was a priest, for example, but I think you're right because the, the timing, I've got my copy, my well-thumbed copy, it's actually, you know, when you got a book with all your things falling apart, and yeah, you, know, yeah. you know it's a good book. <laughs> and I can't remember when it was published, but I think it was the 70s, but uh, I shall tell you right now, 1970, 71. So that's interesting. Which that's book right that? after. 
that's right after the 68 uh, world, you know, the revolution, as it were. And I think you're right. On the back of that big movement came this group of people. In fact, they're roughly, uh, you know, uh, roughly around the same time, really, as they grew and started publishing. And there was also, I remember then, you know, a more sort of hippie vibe around homeschooling. Some of the U.S. was religious, that sort of thing. I think that's what's changed and what we'll discuss today, because maybe we'll round that up towards the end. But we're going through a period now post-COVID where this is a real alive and kicking issue because many kids have not gone back to school and many parents have decided not to send them back to school. And suddenly we find we're in a world where actually it's quite possible to homeschool your kids, even though you don't know any maths or science. So we can leave that to the end, I suppose. But uh, yeah. it's a good point about it. It, it had its time, really. You know, unlike Montessori and so on, who were much, and Steiner, who were much earlier, come out in 19th century tradition, uh, these people are you know, very much second half of the 20th century. Ivan Illich, 1926 to 2002. The Reverend Monsignor Ivan Dominic Illich, to give him his proper title, was an Austrian Roman Catholic priest, theologian, philosopher and social critic. Born in Vienna, his father a civil engineer and a diplomat from a landed Catholic family uh, with kind of Croatian, well, what is now Croatia origins. His mother came from a Jewish family that had converted to Christianity. Nevertheless, she had to move to Florence to escape persecution by the Nazis in 1942. I, I found that a bit old. I mean, I'm going on the Wikimedia, Wikipedia description here. It mentions something about the father, whether he went with them. Um, Florence obviously was in Italy, which uh, was under a fascist dictatorship as well. But perhaps she felt safer there as a uh, as a Jewish person than she did in, in Austria after the Anschluss. I'd, Really not quite sure. Anyway, Ivan studied in Florence and Rome before being ordained as a Catholic priest in Rome in 1951. His first parish was in one of New York's poorest neighbourhoods, Washington Heights, on the northern tip of Manhattan, at that time a barrio of newly arrived Puerto Rican immigrants. Uh, People who've seen West Side Story will kind of uh, associate with that with that vibe. In 1956, at the age of 30, he was appointed vice rector of the Catholic University of Puerto Rico. So moving from Vienna to New York to Puerto Rico, which is sort of part of the US, not quite sure of the exact status there. But he was later thrown out of that because of his criticism of the Vatican's position on birth control and the nuclear bomb. Um, and he continued to quarrel with the church and eventually resigned as a priest. And I, I kind of know something about the background of this as as a cradle Catholic. Uh, we had this very, uh, well, slightly liberal Pope, John the Twenty Third, I think, um, during the 60s. Uh, and the church seemed to be moving in a more kind of liberal uh, direction. And then all that got closed down with Paul, who came after, and the uh, rather authoritarian nature of the, the church prior to John got kind of reasserted. Anyway, Elich continued to quarrel with the church, um, and he, he did resign as a priest, but it seems that he practised, uh, he, 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 he gave masses and communion and stuff like that afterwards. So there, there was some sort of uh, thought that they were going to set up an alternative version of the Catholic Church, but that, that came to nothing. His seminal 1971 book, De-Schooling Society, criticises modern 
society's institutional approach to education, an approach that constrains learning to narrow situations in a fairly short period of the human lifespan. Donald, what was his criticism of the education system? Um, to me, those criticisms seem a bit entangled with his disenchantment with the Catholic Church. So can you disentangle that for us, please? Yeah, that's right. It's interesting, the religious angle, which you focused uh, on there, is a really strong st strain in the book, Deschooling Society, which is a brilliant book. Even if you disagree with every last word in this book, it's short, it's intense, and it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a must read if you work in our field, I think. It, but I think the, the religious thing, funnily enough, wasn't necessarily the Catholic Church. It, it's often thought that he wanted to just get rid of schools full stop, which was not the case. That's not actually what he argues for in the book. He actually, the main argument in the book is the separation of state from the uh, state from the church, you know, the separation of school from the state, I should say, but also from uh, that sort of religious impression. And it wasn't so much the Catholic Church. He mentions that, but it's actually Calvinism he rants and rails against. Ah. And that, this is the idea that so his big bete noir is the Calvinist idea of original sin. He thinks that schools have bought into this big time. And he's sort of right here. So in previous podcasts, post-Reformation, universal schooling comes in. That was very much part of the Reformation. Certainly in Northern Europe and the schooling I received was a thoroughly Calvinist, believe me. England less so, but Northern Europe certainly. And the idea of the universal you know, so original sin, we're, we're born with this deep uh, imperfection when we have to atone for our sins, as it were. It's very different from the Catholic Church in that sense. But he thinks that that's deeply embedded in the schooling system. How do we translate that? You see the learner is just being full of imperfections. Not being able to read and write is an imperfect, because therefore you can't read scripture, is an imper imperfect state for a human being to be in. Uh, I think this is really interesting also in terms of the general mood even now. This idea that, uh, you know, for learning and development, for example, in, in organizations, that employees are seen as having all these deficits. In other words, they're, they're sort of racist, sexist, uh, they don't have any leadership qualities, they don't have this, they don't have that, but we'll bash them into shape, we'll cure them of their original sin. And there's a strong strain of this in the learning world, that people, that they're, you know, we're curing deficits as opposed to being additive and, and creating rounded people. But to go back to... So 1971, that's right, that was the date that we've established now at that point, he thinks something, all of this, this Calvinist root, really, in education has caused all sorts of bad things to happen. And these all these confusions, really. And the confusion is by testing people, you know. In other words, it's, all, all, it's almost like the pearly gates when you die. You know, you will be tested for your sins. So we confuse grades with education, for example. We confuse tests, teaching to the test as a result of this. We also confuse teaching with learning. And this is really interesting in Illich. And I wholly agree with this. When I, somebody told me once they went to see Illich in England, and he sat down at the front. It was a university, sat in the university lecture theatre, and the guy introduced him, and he just sat there completely silent. And people were slightly puzzled. They wanted a lecture. And he point-blank refused to say anything until somebody asked a question, and somebody did. And apparently the session was brilliant. because he just didn't believe in this notion of, I'm the teacher, you're the learner. He want, you know, it was like a, a false binary for him in a way. He thought that the whole thing about, you know, bits of paper were, did not match competence at all. 
people with bits of paper very rarely had competencies that were effective in the real world. The fact that you can write an essay doesn't actually mean you can write a strategy for a company or you know, a, a report or whatever. It, it's, uh, you know, the two things are very, very far apart. And he also thought that simply this sort of rigorous attendance of school, every hour a bell rings, you move on and so on, was a very monastic Calvinist view of education as well. So all these things are confused. Uh, and I think, I think it's, he sees it as a very technocratic, bureaucratic world schools. And I think he's right. When you go into school, well, there's the office with the admin over there. There's a senior leadership team here. There's that department, corridors. You know, It's, it's like a Kafkian sort of world, really. Uh, but he thought it was all based on a grand illusion, you know, that, they had that illusion. And that, I go back to this phrase again, that teaching is not a necessary condition for learning. He really did believe that. And, of course, it's true. I haven't been in the classroom for 40 years. I've learned loads. Uh, and I haven't, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I actually got taught by anybody in any formal sense at all. You know, I mean, I, I can do it myself. So he attacked schooling on the basis of you can't just throw people together and then separate them out in these level sedimentary layers by age. He says that's totally and utterly unnatural compared to the real world. Hey, this teachers and learners distinction. He doesn't like that much. He doesn't like this idea that you have to turn up nine to five like an office every week uh, to, to learn either. You think that he, he, he thinks there's something slightly weird about that. And then also the whole examination accreditation business. So those are the four big practical things he doesn't like about the technocratic, bureaucratic idea of schooling. And they're pretty fundamental to education as we, yeah. we know it, aren't they? It's a process, and he didn't like the process. And he didn't like the process for human reasons, really, because he didn't. He thought this killed off. He was a bit like Ken Robinson. I'm, I don't wholly agree with this, by the way, but he did get killed off. Uh, you know that sort of the uh, the ability of human beings to develop in a more natural and humane way to produce the, the rounded individual. You know, shoving him in a Victorian classroom for literally thirteen years, then to go to university and sit in lecture halls. Like, you know, he just thought it was there was something slightly ridiculous. He thought we were sort of blind to this. He thought we had been fooled into thinking this is good, uh, and it was we be, we become addicted to it because if we went through it, it must be good for our kids. Hmm. And it's a very you know the whole bells, corridors, prize giving thing, prefects. He just abhorred it. He thought it was ridiculous. And when you sit back from it and you get a bit older, you look back and you, you get that feeling. That it's a, a, a bit. But he, he called it an addiction and wanted us to break our addiction from it. You know, it's almost like, break, it's almost like, uh, I suppose, losing your faith if you're a Calvinist or a Catholic, you know, and suddenly coming out and being secular. That's mm -hmm. what he wanted to induce in people here. And he saw, and then, yeah, so that, that's, that was the background to his attack. It's called de-schooling. He didn't actually choose that title. He didn't like the title, actually, de-schooling, because he didn't want to, like, get rid of, you know, suggest that you get rid of education and learning. He just had an alternative view of it. Yeah. Sounds quite modern now, though, doesn't it? It's like yeah, one well, of those terms we'd hear, like, you know, defunding and defund the police and yeah. de-school the schools. So maybe it's, it, it's time for him to have a bit of a renaissance. When, in the last episode, when we are talking about Steiner, I kind of... Um, or I'd potentially potentially use that term orthogonal to 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 say that it, it seemed to me that he wasn't really in Steiner wasn't in any of the, the the kind of accepted currents of thought at that time. He just seems mm -hmm. to kind of stick out at an odd right right angle. Yeah. 
yeah. when I was sort of the little I have read about Illich when I was looking, I found some of it difficult to understand what he was arguing about the church with. And it really reminded me of, you know, again, the little reading I've done in Catholic philosophy and people like Teilhard de Chardin, who, mm. who is a big Catholic thinker, gets a name check in Cheers, weirdly enough, the, the TV <laughs> programme. Um, but you read that stuff and it, it is just so different to anything that I read at university. It's not Marxist, not Freudianism. It's not in any of those traditions. You'd have to know a lot about Aquinas really to to understand all of it. it, it they, they, they have a different kind of terminology and, you know, but how, how do you feel that Elitch, um, that for you, does he sit within what you understand as being the currents of thought of, of his time, or, or is he similarly a bit orthogonal? Well, that, it's a good comparison. It was orthogonal in the following sense. So uh, you, you're rightly saying that Rudolf Steiner was orthogonal, like a perpendicular, a right angle shoots off to mm. the side of oh, this weird, like, astral belief systems. I think Illich is orthogonal in a different way. It's almost like uh, an acute angle where he's shooting off but into the future a little bit. And I'll explain why I really do believe that when I read Illich now, it seems remarkably contemporary. I had a look at the book this morning again. You know, it's, it's like so fresh. And that's because he pointed towards the possible use of technology to create institutions. So he was, you know, he, he really saw the future here, very definitely. So he thinks that the possible, what he called the possible use of technology, which is now the real use of technology, can really serve autonomous learning in a way it never could. And I think that's come to pass. I think actually much of what we do in universities could be well served by just having uh, autonomous learners encouraged with good technology to get through that process now. I think it's eating and creeping into the whole education system, certainly in the whole uh, learning in the workplace thing, it definitely is. But what, what did he mean by that? Because he was quite specific about this acute leap into the future. He was quite prescient and prophetic on this. So. He thought that technology had all this, this superb potency or power, which has yet to be realized, you know, because it thought it would democratize learning. There's no doubt about that. He thought we could be creating these educational objects, a sort of familiar term for those in the e-learning world and so on. He was big on skills exchanges, that notion that there are lots of people in the real world who have skills and they should be teaching others, which is what happens in the workplace. Most learning is through informal learning, not courses. We know this is quantifiable even. And what we do is we pick up skills from other people. So he thought that we could be using technology for a sort of skills exchange idea. It's a sort of YouTube thing. You know, if I want to do something in my car, I go to a YouTube video or a bit of plumbing, and it tells me how to do it uh, on YouTube. And the funny sort of way, I think YouTube is almost a learning platform where it's almost like a skills exchange. He thought there was peer matching was another big thing. That's a mazure idea that we actually, a really good way to learn is by, you know, sitting or getting to know somebody who really knows the shit and then uh, you learn from them to keep it simple and then he thought that there would be a sort of market for it's quite so sort of curiously right-wing a very left-wing person with right-wing ideas here he thought there would be a market for skilled people to be able to to do this freelancers or consultants or whatever uh, and this of course has started to happen you know with the internet we have wikipedia for example suddenly mm. there was the biggest knowledge base curiously created in a social fashion, and it was what Illich predicted. He called this, he called it, even used the word web, a sort of web of learning. <laughs> He's predicting the internet. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about 30 years before it actually happened. Yeah. Uh, 
But he was also massively critical, we shouldn't forget this, of the university system as well. He thought it was almost religious, like a, a religious rite that we got carried away with. Mm. <laughs> that we put our kids through this uh, rite of passage, sending them off for a few years where they find themselves and so on. He just thought it was ridiculously expensive and almost you know, counterproductive uh, in a way. You know, So uh, he described it as the most expensive initiation rite the world has ever seen. So, mm. I'd have some sympathy with this view. Yeah, uh, when you when you say that, it, it does make you think of kind of you know Oxford colleges and all those cloisters and yeah, the you know, they were essentially built on the top of a, a monastic tradition. You know, yeah, um, well, and that was enforced. Yeah. You you had to um, a lot of Catholics couldn't go to university before Catholic emancipation because you know you had to uh, sign up to certain beliefs and and so on to to actually get in. So yeah, that's interesting. Well, Peter Thiel is really articulate in this. He thinks there are really direct parallels between the pre-Reformation Catholic Church and higher education. A sort of priesthood has, you know, that we all pay for has is there. You pay for your uh, indulgences, your bits of paper, and you know the accusation is if you don't get a bit of paper, you're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to get a good job and earn loads of money. Uh, so he thinks the the thing has got rotten like the Catholic Church pre-Reformation and that we're due for a Reformation. And there's, that's exactly, that's a sort of, I mean, Illich says the same thing, but he thinks Calvinism is just as bad and replaces Catholicism with something in many ways that's worse, this idea of original sin. Mm -hmm. But he did think universities were, had made a big mistake by institutionalizing learning around professions like nursing and teaching, and I've talked about this before. He just doesn't think that's the right place to to train those people, I think it's entirely yeah. inappropriate. Because we get addicted to schooling, you know, things we go into these institutions, we think they're necessary and come back and repeat. It's like, it's like abuse, you know, if you're abused, you're more likely to be an abuser type thing, you know, it's that idea that's very, very strong in Illich, that we don't realize it, but we get drawn into this model, and we can't escape it as adults, so we impose it upon our own children. A, and he's also really critical of another thing, which I, I really like in Illich, which is the teacher as therapist or the trainer as therapist. This idea that people who teach your kids actually are also responsible as a sort of pseudo parent for their emotional and moral development. And it's called pastoral, isn't it? Is the adjective yeah, it's like used the Yeah, they have a religious term, but... in university. It's like you know that you have a kind of pastoral function as a. It's a good point. Yeah, a, it used to be your moral tutor course in. Otsbury Colleges, and and uh, when I was at Sussex, I had a personal tutor who yeah. had a kind of pastoral function. But you're right, it's religious. Yeah. It is, oh, yeah, that's why, it's, it's why it drips off the page of stuff, Will. You know, every, every paragraph has an amazing sentence in it, like that little point you just made there, John. And I think he's right on that. You know, I find it absolutely astonishing that academics would think that they're the moral guardians of students. I mean, who do they think? Yeah, it's a complete conceit. What, just because you know something about chemistry, you're suddenly a moral guardian for my children? I don't think so. And in fact, of course, the, the last people you'd ever go to really for moral advice or advice on life is probably an academic, you know, that are, you know, who's cloistered themselves away for some time. They're very good at research and admirable intellectually and so on. But let's not let's not stretch the argument into, into the moral and practical domain as well. So, you know, he's pushing out against the, he doesn't think this classroom is constrictive. He wants to, sorry, that's what his de-schooling is. It's not, you know, demolish and get rid of schools. He just wants to demolish the, the, not the he wants to demolish the, the physical and metaphorical walls of the classroom. 
and that they they constrict and smother children and students in lecture halls, which is why I told that anecdote about him refusing to lecture. But his his legacy for me is this prediction of learning webs, and that um, I think he's really onto something here because I think we're now with this recent AI revolution finally looking out onto a horizon where this will be realised, where you know, universal teacher, as it were, who knows every subject. There's all this great learning theory built into the pedagogy of the thing, can teach you in any subject, is endlessly patient, 24-7, in every language on the planet. And that sounds quite good to me, you know. I think uh, for the poor, poor in the world, it sounds excellent. And, of course, he was big on protecting or nourishing the poor because they thought they got a raw deal. I, I agree with him. Huh. So a very interesting guy. I mean... Uh, I can't recommend Deschooling Society enough as a book. John Taylor Gatto, 1935 to 2018. Whenever I hear, hear that name, I think of cake. I'm sorry. John Taylor Gatto was an award-winning American author and school teacher, born in a steel town near Pittsburgh in the US. He was educated in the American public school system, which we is the opposite to what you'd say in, in Great Britain. That's, um, you know, kind of state schools, but also at a Catholic board, Catholic boarding school. So two very different types of um, education. Studied at a number of US universities, a whole list. You know, he, he said he was a perpetual student, I suppose, including Cornell, Columbia, City University of New York, Berkeley, Berkeley, or however you pronounce it, um, and several others. Uh, served in the US Medical Corps worked as an advertising copywriter, uh, Mad Men era as well, this. Then in 1960, borrowed his roommate's teaching license and went to work in Harlem as a substitute teacher. Very run down there at that point. This mm. started him on a career teaching disadvantaged kids that saw him getting stellar results. He was named New York City Teacher of the Year in 1989, 1990, 1991, and New York State Teacher of the Year in 1991. But 1991 was the year he quit. Very publicly, after teaching for nearly 30 years, his resignation letter was in the Wall Street Journal mm. saying he no longer wished to hurt kids to make a living. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a bit of the tenor of his kind of rhetorical flourishes. You know, they, they, it's quite hyperbolic in a way. He authored several books on modern education, criticizing its ideology, history, and consequences. Best known were Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden curriculum of compulsory schooling and the underground history of american education a school teacher's intimate investigation into the problem of modern schooling donald what was the problem of modern schooling in his view yeah well i think you, you summed that up quite nicely in the biographical sketch there he did with that phrase dumbing us down he really thought that was true he he thought that the system, in a sense, was quite class-based. You know, he taught in it's really interesting. You know, teachers very often come out on, especially on social media, and say, "Well, you know, all these people who are not who don't teach, criticizing us as teachers in schooling. They don't know what it's like." Well, this guy did know what it was like. Taught in Harlem for years. Yeah. Uh, top of his game. You know, a particular focus on the poor, and just walks out one day. What an extraordinary story! Walks out and goes, "I'm doing more harm than good here because of the system." And there were several aspects of the system he didn't like. He, he absolutely just like Illich. He hated that notion of confinement, that smothering of kids, the testing system, the fixed periods, the, the standardization, really, that templating the state's view of what education would be through an A fixed curriculum. 
Now, he has some very interesting things to say about that. I'll come to that in a moment. But he also thought that the exclusion of parents and families from, uh, from schooling was a big mistake socially. He thought that, that putting that, that, that wall between teachers and pupils and, and, their, and their parents and families was a big mistake. In fact, he, what he really hated when he left, it was really interesting, he ranted and railed against this. Parents and families were treated as the enemy by teachers. He, he, described, he used really bitter language about that. And he thought that led to all sorts of problems. So he did become quite a sort of liberty, like a weird sort of right-wing sort of, almost a caricature, to be honest. And as he went on here, like hardcore right-wing libertarian type thing. Nevertheless, the stuff he wrote was really interesting. So if I come back to the curriculum thing, John, because yeah. uh, that's, that's the most interesting thing for me. So he wrote this book called An Underground History of American Education. It's a fattish book. It's actually not well written at all. I think he was a better teacher than a writer, I should say. But he did what we did in our podcast. He went back to the Prussian origins of the US schooling system. And of course, he, he did what we did. We quoted we, Horace Mann, this, uh, yeah. some report. So he comes into Massachusetts. He brings the Prussian system, including the curriculum. And this is what's often... So you get the Prussian idea of templates and order, the school, our, the bells, the nine-to-five type system, we all know. But it's the fixed curriculum he really looked at because that was two other people. So there's a guy called, uh, called Conant, another guy called Inglis. They actually fossilized the curriculum, the subject division thing, first of all, you know, so you have maths, English, science, you know, all those little complete silos. They're yeah. all taught separately by separate teachers. That was a Prussian idea. And then you have the eight, so that's the vertical silos, and then you have age grading across that, across that, constant testing to see if you've adhered to the curriculum, uh, even punishment to make sure you, 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 that you adhere to this thing. He thought this was complete, a fossilized view of the curriculum, syllabus, and education. And, it, and then on top of that, a layer of behaviorism that was completely out of order, which he didn't like, also a sort of business tailorist view of the world. And so he really goes into town about the the government's role in all this and thought that the, all these, when he worked in Harlem, they, he, he, he has this big list of 22 agencies and he attacks them each one by one. He's saying this is a whole thing that's governed by the state, by faceless bureaucrats, technocrats, and it doesn't do children any good whatsoever, but it does keep them all in a job. <laughs> so he'd, been he'd be ranting and railing against Ofsted, just like most teachers. But of course, he didn't let much like teaching either, because he thought this was a sort of factory model, really used that word. He thought that actually most people don't realize because they forget. He says that most people think they have a sort of glowing, rosy red view of school when they leave, only the ones who do well, of course. Mm. Uh, he thinks actually when people really reflect on their time at school, it's mostly boredom. Or, or disinterest, you know, that if you really look at kids in a classroom, it's very hard hard to maintain their attention for even an hour on any single subject. Yeah. And that it's at completely odds with this age mixture outside of schools and relationship kids with, or with their families or their communities. And that that's, he thought that, uh, you know, the, use the prison analogy really, but he, he thinks that school knocks the humanity out of people. And that they become, uh, you know, they become these rather odd caricatures of themselves. Uh, and uh, funnily enough, he has a, he, he's quite an extrovert, if you've ever seen him speak in this in video and so on. But he also thinks that solitude is very good for children. Uh, you know, periods of solitude where 
kids learn to sort of control their own emotions and don't get carried away with a peer group who bully other peer groups. This is really at odds with the social view of education, which people love. And I have some sympathy with this view here. I think we just throw that word social in the front of everybody and think it's a cure-all for everything. But actually, for many people at school who perhaps don't fit in, who may be slightly autistic or you know dyslexic or whatever, these peer groups are brutal mm-hmm. and horrible you know, for, for those kids. So it doesn't surprise me that lots of parents are pulling the kids out of school because their kids don't have a happy time. They're either bored or bullied. People think school's great, social, but the social thing can be bitter and horrible. Uh, to to learn that you have a problem with kids committing suicide, even on the back of this. So, education is not the same as schooling for him. You know, education is something different. He makes that distinction, and he also likes communities and networks. Like send your kids to sports clubs, get them to teach, to learn music outside of school. I did that with my kids certainly. And I think it did them no end of good to have something to balance out the strictures of school. Mm. Uh, absolutely. You've told us a lot about what he was against. What was he in favour of? Yeah, Apart well, from the solitude thing, which is which is an interesting, <laughs> interesting addition, yeah. I think. But... <laughs> well, this is, I think this is his big weakness here because he comes out as a libertarian, voucher-driven type American guy, you know, who thinks, yeah, well, the market will sort it out, as it were. Yeah which I don't think is true. And that's the danger. But he was very much an American critic of the American schooling system uh, and didn't really pay any attention from what I've read of Gatto to other models here, whether it's Chinese or you know European models, which are very different in themselves, depending on what country you're in. So I think, to be fair, he does concrete recommendations on what he gets rid of. But that one about giving children periods of silence is really an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's mm-hmm. so odd with what every teacher thinks. He thought you should, they recommended plenty of solitude for kids so that they can learn to live with themselves. And it also, it's a Vygotsky thing, the internal dialogue, that notion that they should be thinking. It's what you do as a student. You go to the library or you lock yourself in a room. That's what you do a lot of learning, isn't it? You know, you're sitting there with these figures and learning maths, learning philosophy, learning English, but it's an internal dialogue that allows you to mature. This is what, Vygotsky thought was terribly important, but we sort of knock that out of people when we make them sit in classrooms with 29 other people or in large lecture halls where where they're massively distracted. So he thought it was important not to addict children to peer groups and being in social groups all the time, because in real life you aren't necessarily, you know, 24 hours a day with other people and and strangers. He didn't like the crowd or peer groups, which schools tend to promote. That's mm. an interesting, positive thing, I think, because I, I, I've always been highly suspicious of the whole everything should be social. All knowledge is socially constructed, uh, constructed, so I just don't believe that. I've never been a social constructivist. Yeah. And so he appealed to me on that front. Apart from the, the, the more extreme dangers of kind of, you know, bullying and suicide and so on, I, I could um, pick up on the vocabulary of, Molesworth to return to our introduction there is this word SWAT one thing I can remember about school is like being at great pains not to distinguish myself academically in you know the kind of first three or four years of of my secondary school because the penalty for doing that was terrible you know the the bright kids really got kind of um really got pilloried 
and I think there there is a tendency for people to kind of hide the light under a bushel and and you know to actually depress their results because the people they hang around with and the peer group does not like it. The peer group wants to kind of keep that that you know you're you're going over to the enemy if you're showing any interest in the process really. And I think that's probably more widespread than you know people really like to talk about. Interesting. No, I think that's true, and I experienced that an extreme form of that when I was at school being a sort of one of the sorts that you had a bookish kid really yeah. I was okay though yeah and that you because I, I hardly any people in my school my school went to university at all and uh but the interesting thing there is you become smart enough to know what the problem is if you're smart enough yeah is that actually these people know the game what the game is here and that you're going to get the rewards and they're not <laughs> uh and therefore, you know, the the I think there's a quite early awakening in kids that you know the middle class kids in the schools who come with their brand new uniforms and new school bags and so on are on a different game here. You know, their parents can play a game that they're going to lose at. So I was a bit sympathetic to that. There was an ever present threat of violence to anybody who was academic in my school, but uh, you you learn to befriend a few people who can protect you and all that sort of. You learn a lot in school, other than that. You know, being a SWAT and picking up on the and yeah. so the other thing is silence as well. I think, you know, I've seen again and again on reports um, that came back from you know our eldest daughter is very, very, very bright. Uh, and the one thing is she's very silent. Class doesn't say much. Uh, it, and if kids don't talk in 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 school, it's seen by the teachers being a kind of sign of non participation in in what's going on in the classroom, and is treated as a problem. Um, my primary school, I was so silent. That I was taken out of class and given batches of hearing tests, intelligence tests, because they, I think they thought I was a bit, um, you know, I had learning difficulties. And they discovered what it was, is that I already knew how to read when I went to school. So Janet and John wasn't giving me a lot of stimulation. So I just kind of gazed out the window. That's a very interesting point, John. It's a gato point around this, yeah. you know, about not treating people who are quiet. There's a very good book I've got called Quiet that I read a couple of years ago on this very point that introverts, uh, you know, the kids who go on to just do coding and so on, who are usually super smart and interesting, uh, don't do well in school because the expectation is hands up anyone, you know, in the school yeah. or social environment. Anyway, anybody got the answer to this one? All the extroverts put their hands up. All those kids are sitting there. And then, you know, oh, let's do role play in the workplace. You got, are you kidding me? You know, all these extrovert trainers want to be slightly theatrical about everything, when in the real world, loads of people just think this is idiocy and childish, infantile. So I think education has a tendency to lean towards extroverts. I uh, would wholly and utterly agree with that. And that's one of the points Gatto makes here. Mm. There was a quiet pregnant pause there, John. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so John Holt, 1923 to 1985. Our next theorist is John Holt, not the famous Jamaican reggae singer who wrote The Tide is High as covered by Blondie and Atomic Kitten, but an American author and educator, a proponent of homeschooling, specifically the unschooling approach, and a pioneer in youth rights theory. I have to say, when I was preparing for this, I got very distracted and spent a whole morning listening to John Holt. Not this right. John Holt, but the um, the early work of the Jamaican reggae. And the early <laughs> stuff is really brilliant. Just such an amazing voice. 
But it did start me thinking, how do people like that learn to do what they do? And I was thinking of kind of Muddy Waters. How did he learn the blues? You know, it wasn't at, 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 at school. It was hanging around in very, un, you know, kind of um, probably not really child-safe environments, although there are certain educational uh, establishments that don't really offer child-safe environments, uh, like kind of blues clubs and so on, learning from older people. And this is a real thing in music, is that you learn from from kind of older people. And that made me think of think of Elitch and what you were saying earlier, that you're you're denied that. If if you, you only learn from a teacher and from your peer group, you don't get this thing of kind of mentoring, which is in other circumstances is an important part of learning, really. Fixing on someone who's older who you admire, who then agrees to pass their knowledge and skills onto you. It's not catered for that much in the in the education system. Anyway, back to Holt. Yeah. Born in New York City, graduated from Yale University in 1943 with a degree in industrial engineering, interestingly, but signed up to be a submariner in World War II. On his discharge, he joined the United World Federalists, an organization that promoted world peace through the formation of a single world government. Not a completely new one on me, that I'd never heard of that. He rose up the ranks of this organization and served as the executive director of the group's New York State chapter when he left in 1952 due to frustration with the organization's lack of progress in forming a world government. He then became a school teacher, teaching at elementary and middle schools in Colorado and Massachusetts, but uh, two schools in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But he quite quickly became disillusioned with what he saw in the education system much more quickly than Gatto. I mean, Gatto did 30 years um, and Holt did far fewer. And believing that the system was unreformable, began to recommend homeschooling. He wrote books, including How Children Fail, followed by How Children Learn, and in 1981, Teach Your Own, which became the Bible of the early homeschooling movement. He also started a newsletter and even set up a bookshop to promote about the ideas. Donald, what were his particular dissatisfactions with schools and how do they compare or contrast with those of Gatto and Illich? Do they all kind of fall in uh, complaining about the same things or is there, there a difference here? Yeah, I think there's a difference. I always learn something from your biographers. I had no idea about him being part of the New World Order. World it's government. a bizarre one, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, I had no yeah. idea that was true of Paul. Yeah, I missed that one for some reason. I don't think he put it in his books, you know, in learning. But no, uh, probably not. Yeah, the, so we, you know, we tackled Illich, the de-schooling, let's call that the title of his book. And then we had Gatto, which is almost like unschooling. But this guy is known as the grandfather or father of homeschooling. Yeah. And uh, people like Illich didn't like home the term homeschooling because he did. And not, neither, to be fair to Holt, he didn't like it much either, to be honest, because in fact, if you look at the titles of his book, they don't have homeschooling in the title. You know, how children, uh, so the, uh, the first one, how children how fail. Children fail, then how children right, learn. Yeah. And then how children learn, and then he goes on to do the real teacher-own type stuff. And then he had this amazing newsletter that became, and still is a, like an, an amazing thing in the homeschooling movement. But he also didn't like the word home, the suggestion that, oh, well, we just keep kids in the house <laughs> and, we, and we, they don't get any social life or whatever. He was very right. suspicious of the word itself, but he is... The homeschooling guy, you know, anybody who's involved in it knows knows Holt. Uh, but he was, I mean, he's also like the other two hypercritical of, I mean, he thought that schools 
it, it produced stupidity for me. You know, people, the, the end product was just awful, you know, this conformist test exam driven kids uh, who just get far too much knowledge shoved at them. Uh, that, uh, that, that notion of Freire's banking of knowledge, that's what you're rewarded for. Any other things in life, like being a really good musician, perhaps you get rewarded less, or being good with your hands, or being good with your heart, and an emotional sort of person who might go on and become a nurse. Those things aren't respected. What's respected is the head and cognitive stuff. He thought that was the opposite of what life is and should be. So it was a big moral thing for him, him that schools promoted head at, at the expense of hand and heart. Uh, so uh, he was friendly with Illich as well. He was a good friend uh, of Ivan Illich. So the you know the two are sort of entwined here. So okay. in his book, Escape from Childhood, <laughs> he thought what was important here is to recognize the rights of children. These are real human beings that are going to evolve, adapt, and grow up into the real world, and that we're doing them real harm. He was really big on this notion of the children, children not having a say, like a vote at age 11 or whatever, but listening to their needs, you know? So his practical stuff on homeschooling was full of being careful with the emotional needs of a child as well as, of course, their, uh, their very clearly their educational needs. Hmm. And so he produces all these manuals. And uh, today, I mean, in Brighton, I, I know somebody around the corner who have, is, uh, they have three kids, uh, one very young, the other two, you know, like uh, I think about 11 and 13, who don't go to local secondary schools. And they're really interesting kids. And they're the very opposite of what you expect. They're massively social and very comfortable at speaking to adults. Yeah. You know, whereas most kids are a bit mopey and a bit teenagey. These kids are there. And they go down to the skate park. They're good at skating. They're academically quite good. So I think there's this myth that homeschooling is a complete and utter disaster and it all takes place in the home. And of course, people who do it seriously do the very opposite. They don't lock their kids up at home. They make sure they get a more experiential and sophisticated view of the world outside of the home. Very often, uh, you rightly said there, John, you know, I remember at school, this is what music, <laughs> I loved your, I was reflecting this when you talked about music. I'll tell you what I got at both primary and secondary school and Scottish schooling system. We, got, we sat in a class while well, some old codger plonked out green sleeves and hymns on a piano and we sang them. I did that for years. I have no idea what, why we did it, what relation it had to education. I never went near a musical instrument. Absolute, in the inanity of it. That's all I got, even in secondary school. Now, I was lucky enough, because a friend of mine, his father played the bagpipes, and <laughs> my, my introduction to music was... He gave me a chanter, which is the bottom little thing. It's like a flute. We're reading the top. It's quite a difficult instrument to play because you play you play straight to the reed. Mm -hmm. I loved this thing and became quite competent until he left, and that was me. But I could, I could hammer out a little way, you know, Scotland the Brave on the chanter and the bagpipes. Wow! But isn't that bizarre? That compare and contrast. My, I really would have liked to have gone on and you know done something in that area, but it was thwarted because I got absolutely nothing at school. And to yeah. be fair, with my kids, it was a bit better because one of my I have two boys, one of them very interestingly got introduced. To be fair, the school was quite good in this local school because they brought in external guitar and drum teachers and so on. And then if you were interested in an instrument, they put you in touch with a guy and the parents would pay a wee bit, but it was subsidized. And that yeah. worked wonders for my kid who became very good at drums. Uh, you know, we played after, long after they left school for years and years. Uh, all sorts of things from jazz to you play anything really and read music. Mm. And now that was completely really 
to be fair, the catalyst was the school, but it happened outside of the school. Because yeah, there's a thing called Rock School, isn't there, in Brighton? That's, that's right. right. Yeah, they, they do kind of these regular uh, events in Blakers Park, yeah. in five ways in a part of Brighton, folks. It's getting very parochial here, I'm afraid. And um, they would they would put on these concerts, and all the kids would come up and, and play right. all the stuff. You know, varying age groups, and have this abiding memory of um, <laughs> of these kids running through. I think a Rage Against the Machine yeah. number, and the, the, this little kid, probably I don't know, ten or eleven, going, "Fuck you! Won't do what I say. You tell me, fuck you! Won't do what I tell you." And uh, the parents, um, you know, in, in just in front of us, saying. Jimmy's coming on very well with his singing now, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, it's the most middle class thing you can you can imagine. But, um, well, one of my boys, he actually did it in the dome because I was, you know, yeah. involved. I was deputy chair of that organisation, and it, it was absolutely fantastic every year because Brighton's full of you know retired music, rock musicians or punk music like yourself, John. And so there was no end um, yes. of willingness of people to teach these kids, and they would get them together at the beginning of the, the week on a, the Monday or Saturday, I can't remember, and then they would. They would get them to join bands. They'd never met each other, so they would learn how to get on with each other. And by the end of the week, on the Friday night, they would perform in front of a big audience. And uh, I was always astonished at how good this was. You know, there would be kids who would do a reggae or rock or whatever, some classical, you know. And they had all, they had written this, they, the rule was they had to write fresh material. I was surprised that, that you had heard Rock Against the Machine, uh, Rage Against the Machine, because yeah. the, the kids I saw had written original compositions and lyrics and stuff. And it was really good, you know? Yeah. So I suppose it backs up what, what I'm saying. We both had that experience with our, our children where clearly, I think a lot of parents have this, looking back, you go, actually, their main and most fruitful influences were sometimes at school. Oh, yeah. boys, one, the shaping educational experience in his life really was a sport, Taekwondo. He got into the England team and he fights now all over the world and has for many years. It's shaped his life morally as a person. He absolutely loves and adores it. Uh, but he also did the degree. He's got a degree in the artificial intelligence and all that sort of thing. You know, it was separate from it. And then my, his twin brother, this was like an, it's like living with a psychological experiment, uh, brought them up the same way, didn't go to university at all, like, couldn't wait to leave school. Very sociable kid. And he mm. became the, the drummer and went into marketing, runs his own company, now hires graduates. So, you know, your kids, school's a funny thing, isn't it? it, it, it it's mm. almost as if it tries to thwart what they really want to do, but they eventually find themselves and do what they want to do. It's interesting, though, what you're saying, though, that, that in both music and sport, there is this, there is a kind of mentoring thing that happens outside school there exactly. that happens. there. Is, and, you know, in in, mu in rock music now, there's a, a, a kind of tradition that um, bands of old gits uh, of, of my generation will get back together, but the drummers died through substance abuse, so their son sits in, <laughs> yeah, or, or daughter, you know, whatever. So <laughs> you you do see much more multi generational bands nowadays, and it's yeah. uh, there is a lot of that. But in in music and in sport, you don't get that so much in more academic subjects. No, well, I suppose you, with music you can carry on uh, a la Mick Jagger till you're in your eighties. Uh, whereas in sport, your sort of career comes to an end in your thirties, even if it's a hardcore physical sport. But uh, oh, you become a coach. You become you a know. coach. Yeah. In fact, so, that, you know, my point, really. Yeah. That, that's right. And uh, 
and that Callum uh, does a lot of coaching now, and you know he, he can grade people, and you know he's got high level international coaching qualifications. So okay. uh, there's a way forward in that. I, I think that's right, but I think a lot of parents have this experience where, and perhaps these three people we've discussed have this theme in common, which is that school isn't the be all and end all in terms of edu- education of young people, mm. and we should loosen up on this a little bit and perhaps allow. A sort of form of growth out with the school, school whether it's in music and sport and all sorts of other things, because they do it better, mm. you know, because it's a very curriculum structured, structured, templated, one size fits all world. Whereas sport and music isn't like that at all. Yeah. What they, what these three critics of education have been telling us in their own different ways, is that that also applies to actually some of the school subjects as well, like math, science, whatever, English literature. Yeah. And uh, I think there is an interesting, I mean, I think uh, there are interesting things happening now on that front, isn't there? Because post-COVID, we've had this massive, in a sense, these people were predict- <laughs> predicted this, you've had a massive rise in homeschooling and absence. Those are two separate things, but they overlap. So, uh, there's, you know, some, some of the surveys and stats are astonishing, you know. The number of homeschool students has risen dramatically post-COVID. Covid by about fifty percent, uh, uh, especially in the in the US. So that you've got you know roughly about two two point five. Some people think two point seven million homeschooled people in the US. That's more than the number of people at Catholic schools now. It's become a really significant player homeschooling, and of course there was a surge because of Covid, and it may be the lasting effects of Covid. But it's multivariant. There are all sorts of causes behind this. I think homeschooling is no longer seen as a sort of fringe activity for the religious people or, you know, just very progressive people. I think it's sort of drifting towards the mainstream now and seen as, a not, yeah. as an option uh, because the technologies that allows you and the networks and communities of homeschooling people are big enough now for you to do it and think it's possible. So To your point, actually, if I could be allowed one more Brighton-based anecdote. Um, they, we, we, uh, we have this glorious institution in Brighton, uh, the uh, which kicks off the Brighton Festival every year, which is you know, a fairly sizable festival for those in, in other countries. Uh, sizable arts festival, probably the biggest after after Edinburgh. Um, and that it's kicked off by the Children's Parade, uh, where all the local schools um, through the whole area kind of can, uh, put on the bits of this parade and you have samba bands and everybody dresses up and they have themes and massive papier-mâché floats that the kids work on all year round. But it's really interesting to, as, as parents, stand beside that um, uh, that that procession and see the different styles of all the local schools as they come yeah. through. So yeah. the private schools go in for it, you know. Uh, the the faith schools, um, you know, who, who quite regimented in in particular uniforms and and all the rest of it. Uh, and then you have the kind of samba bands ones. Uh, uh, my my. My my daughter played in a, a, a samba band for years, yeah. and we used to have to go to this um, event, which was always held on a Saturday morning. Uh, all the parents yeah. had grisly Absolutely. hangovers and cups of coffee and everything. Uh, and then finally, one year, they admitted the homeschool people into it. Yeah. There'd been all these schools, and then you got the homeschool <laughs> people, and everybody else had these incredible floats. Some of them were really sort of like light up, mechanized, <laughs> very very organized. And the homeschool people came past, and it was kind of delightfully, sort of anarchic, um, shambolic, and you know, 
but but joyful in, in a way. And, and it just made me think that, you know, they, and my kids would make jokes about homeschool people. Homeschool, homeschooling as an option is socially ostracized because it's completely outside the you know, the peer group forces. And even yeah. now I feel like I'm that description, I'm kind of making jokes at it. And I say, well, we're all laughing as they went past, you know, oh, God, there's the homeschool people. Um, and, and that's weird, but their inclusion in, in the procession, I felt was some kind of acknowledgement of what you're saying there, that it, it, it's much more a thing. And the, uh, the, the pandemic, of course, has given it an, an extra boost. So summing up, Donald, were these three voices crying in the wilderness, so to speak, or do they represent wider currents of dissatisfaction with the Prussian system, as we kind of, you know, just to give it that name to be able to kind of yeah. talk about it as a thing? And did they have any effect on mainstream opinion and practice? Well, I think their, their practical effects at the time were minimal, as we've discussed, because state schooling or private schooling is still the dominant paradigm. But we started to drift into an interesting phenomenon uh, just a few moments ago there, because yeah. actually what... So John, John Gatto said something interesting, which I agree with him, on which is that schooling is unreformable, which is why he left. He thought, it's a waste of time staying here. There's nothing I can do to change it uh, because it's so fossilized, so structured, uh, so solid. Politically, institutionally, it's you know it's just sort of you know an immovable object, unreformable. But unreformable things are never wholly unreformable because shit happens, and something like COVID comes along, and so an external force can be very very powerful here. And what's interesting about their prescience here was that actually what they said is likely to happen at some point is starting to happen. So. If we take Illich, he thought that technology would have a massive impact on schooling once it matured, and that these webs of knowledge and the ability of learners, not teachers, to educate themselves with their parents, whatever, would happen quite readily. We're sort of on the verge of that now. You know, we have uh, the ice thing, can mingle, 999. You can teach any subject in this thing. It's absolutely amazing in terms of the personalized feedback. Being trialed massively in America at the moment with things like Duolingo, Wikipedia. We've, got, we've had this big rush of things now on the back of AI, and it will grow rapidly. Uh, Duolingo, for example, is folded in ChatGPT. Uh, ChatGPT seems to know everything and almost everything. Suddenly, it's a real practical option in the way Illich envisaged here that technology would allow learners to be autonomous learners because teachers would be uh, uh, replaced by, uh, by really smart teachers, <laughs> but through technology. So I think his dream is sort of starting to come true now because of the AI revolution, nothing to do with COVID. I think in terms of Gatto, uh, I think his vision is, was more of a critique of schools, but nevertheless, I think his attack on that bit of a myth that schools are where you socialize children, well, maybe not. Maybe it's a bad form of socialization, the reinforcement of really horrible peer groups who bully other people, for example, or who are quiet, autistic, or uh, you know, uh, you know, neurodiverse people have no role, find themselves absolutely abandoned, and uh, often suffer really badly. I think don't underestimate the amount of suffering that kids have through school. We think it's a very jolly hockey stick sort of place, but not for a lot of people. 
I think Gatto is right there. And then the big one for me is John Holton homeschooling because that's alive and kicking. And as we just said, it is becoming very big indeed. Substantial portions of populations are now homeschooling because of the technology a la Illich, the unreformable nature of schooling. So it's not coping well with all these problems. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the way in which this sudden, let's call it a little revolution in, in schooling through homeschooling or autonomous schooling has gone, even in higher education, uh, you know, do you really need the degree? Enrollments in American universities have been going down for 13 consecutive years. 13 years in a row they've been going down. Attitudes towards getting a degree or higher education in the U.S. have plummeted across all demographics. Uh, so there's a great, there's a crisis in relevance, I think, in higher education, which some of these critics thought was is warranted. Uh, we've gone through that in detail. But the reasons for this are, Bubbling to the surface here, John, I feel, you know, that there's real concerns by parents about schools and paying for university. Is it worth it? But real concerns about bullying and all sorts of things. And, and that. I think there's a second thing. Some people just don't like the moral view of school. Some people don't like it because it's too right wing. Other people think a lot of the sort of culture war stuff is ridiculous in schools and how dare you teach people children, things that I disagree with, they have a point as well. I think there's a lot of politicization of schools that... that Huge amount. It's, you know, some parents are getting scared that that their kids are being forced to transition to to another gender, and they're getting worried about what's in the books they're reading for, you know, kids in school have been reading things like Lord of the Flies and so on for ages, but now there's a tremendous focus on this and i'm not just talking about um i saw this in my local magazine you know these magazines they send around to you know completely local advertising full of ads for plumbers have little articles in there there's a big thing in there about kind of critical race theory and how we have to find out what our teacher lefty teachers are actually teaching you know this is in in brighton well given it yeah north brighton patcham it's a bit more conservative than the rest of the town this is not just happening in florida it's it's happening all over the place it's incredibly politicized on both sides of the i think that's right there there are different angles of course because the americans there is a a really big thing in homeschooling is the fear around school shootings so that doesn't exist at all here and anywhere else in the world i don't think it's a big american thing but there's some of the commonalities are bullying the liberal over liberal or over right-wing viewpoints you know people don't like that some religious stuff thrown in there as well but i think there there are real concerns against neurodiversity as well parents whose kids they feel don't fit in or badly bullied taking their kids out of school i think that's become a big thing as well a you know, behavioural problems at schools, they see schools as rough and ready sort of places where it's difficult for some kids to survive even, never mind never mind thrive. All of these multivariant things are coming together. And if you have an alternative to state or formal schooling, it's become possible. And that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing now. And I know some of those people. We do live in Brighton, which is a bit of an exception. And I was the deputy chair of that very festival for 10 years. And yeah. we used to love the Children's Parade because wow. it's probably the best bit of it for me because actually the Arts Festival was very much targeted at upper middle class people, the truth be told, with classical concerts. But we tried to make it as, democra- as democratic as possible. But the Children's Parade was the start of the show because everybody was there. The whole town came out which was absolutely heartening and uh, brilliant, as you nicely described, very vividly described, John. But I think the inappropriateness of the schooling model, schooling model 
is stronger now than it's ever been in my lifetime because the alternatives are there. Yeah. Isn't it difficult, though, to make a... I mean, the difficult here, we're talking particularly about criticisms in schools, and you can criticise schools and for, for all these reasons, mm. and you can say they're unreformable. But then that doesn't that then mean, you know, kids have got to learn. Um, how are you going to do that? Do you, do you build a new system from the from the ground up? Do you burn everything down and build a new system completely up? That just doesn't seem to be practical. On the other hand, it seems like, as we both know, I mean, um, education is incredibly conservative as a business sector compared yeah. to, say, training. You know, I mean, it, I've never understood why education is always competitive. And training isn't competitive. You just want everyone to kind of hit a certain mark to be able to do their jobs. Yeah. You know, and maybe the better ones will get creamed on on the basis of performance, not credentialization. But yeah. schools are always competitive. It's always kind of who came top of the class. You know, let's stream you to make sure that the the, the, the slow ones don't hold back the fast ones, and we'll give you your ranking all the time of where you are in the system. It's completely Which different. So to so to replace that, can you evolve out of that? Is it too rigid to evolve out of, or you know, how, how do you go forward with that change? Well, I think you can go forward by looking at other systems. It's particularly bad in the UK because you have this incredibly powerful private school system that seems to just grab institutional jobs and politics. That's worse than it's ever been. You don't really get many you know, people who didn't go to uni in the House of Commons or House of Lords these days. Uh, so that, 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 that's, that's been a bad thing. I think in general, if you go, I spend a lot of time in Europe and places like Holland and that where there's less pressure, you know, it just seems like teachers are slight, you know, they're sorry, parents and so on are less, it's less of that, you know, top of the class really matters, less funneling towards universities. Universities in the Netherlands have, don't have this big status thing and obsessed by ranking like the British universities and the US universities. Isn't it odd that universities are obsessed by ranking? Even businesses don't rank themselves. They're the most competitive capitalist places now. Well, you've got the Fortune the 500 and the Fortune 500. And... Yeah, but that's mostly to do with share price, to be honest, rather than you know a quantifiable thing or output. Yeah. There's so many of these ranking systems, you know, and you hear every university find, oh, yeah, we're number three on how green our sports fields are, or whatever, you know, so you, everyone shall have prizes in the ranking system. But uh, now let's go back to that point. So that, uh, there is a really serious point here about core education, though, I think. I think some other countries do it better. Uh, they don't start until people are uh, much older, uh, get towards age seven and so on in some countries. I think that's sensible. We are obsessed. Yeah, Finland's always brought up. Yeah, I think that's right. We're obsessed in this country by that. But... There is a serious point here as well, which people sometimes forget. So we have all these movements like reimagining education, reinventing education, they're all conferences around this. Good people, but they're delude, deluded, I fear, because actually the educational system as funded by the state is the result of a democratic system and the wishes of the parents. And we could next year, I hope, vote out the current government. <laughs> uh, and uh, we will have not much change in education. That's the truth. Actually, it seems to be rock solid, no matter Labour or Conservative. And that's the that's what I think Gatto was pointing towards, the unreformable nature of education. Because parents are actually quite conservative, but and then Illich and, and others thought this is because we've become addicted to what we experienced and we just carry on by generation after generation. 
like religion. You know, if you're born in a Jewish family, you're going to be Jewish. If you're born in a Catholic family, you're Catholic. They think schooling, we're born into schools, we become schoolers. And the answer to bad schooling is always more schooling. Let's, let's make them turn up at seven o'clock in the morning and release them at six at night or something ridiculous. But the, tr the, the truth is also, I think it's right that it should be a democratic thing. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the democratic process produces a graduate class that grab the political capital and then impose that upon everyone else. And the majority of people who do not go to university, of course, are start get squeezed out year after year after year. And that's what's happened over the last few decades, stretching the elastic stretching of inequalities uh, towards a graduate class that now controls politics and therefore controls the budgets and decision-making around education and has fossilized it even more. And that's why I'm quite in favor of homeschooling. I'm, you know, more power at your elbow. If you want to do it, do it, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for a bit of a more heterogeneity into what is a very homogeneous system. But still, there are lots of people who don't want to do that uh, because they work hard. Uh, you know, it's a, it would have been unimaginable for my parents to homeschool me because both worked shifts. Hmm. <laughs> so it would be like completely and utterly impractical. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't all have jobs where it's convenient you, know, you hang around all day with your kids. Uh, many families have hardcore jobs where they're exhausted at the end of the day. And the last thing they want to do, be doing is nurturing their kids through homeschooling or homework. So there are a number of big heavyweight political issues around this, and it's too easy to jump onto the progressive bandwagon and imagine that all schools are bad, they're like prisons. Uh, but you asked a very interesting question halfway through the podcast, John, what's the alternative? Then things become tricky because homeschooling is not the alternative we may think it is. I think it'd be interesting to perhaps to, if we were to look back in five years on this conversation, I mean, very often change seems impossible um to people and actually it, it it's just around <laughs> the corner and you just don't know it you know yeah. like it must have seemed to kind of people just for the french revolution things will just go on as they are yeah. uh so but who knows I, this is my way of kind of glossing the fact that i've raised the question that we can't possibly answer in the you know the, the last dying moments of, of of this podcast but it's been an absolutely fascinating scamper through the uh the 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 the, the What's it? The the case for the prosecution. Yes, sure. I think we've done that pretty thoroughly, um, <laughs> and it'd be interesting to move on to coming up in Berlin. Um, what I think is probably what a lot of people in education feel is what is coming for them, which is generative AI yeah. and the uh, you know, the learning implications of that and the, and the, the history of how that came to be with learning theory and so on so thank you very much for for this one Dom. thank you john great minds on learning comes from the learning hack team and is produced by john helmer the podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by donald clark and we thank donald for his kind collaboration in this project if you'd like text summaries and transcripts for these podcasts as well as ads free listening early access to episodes and more why not join the learning hack pack less than the price of a coffee you can get all these benefits and help to sustain us into the future go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack for a seven day free trial that's patreon.com forward slash learning hack